All right, as usual, our uh, team does such a good job with those videos. Uh, so if you're new, welcome again. Uh, happy Father's Day. Um, I, Father's Day, obviously, I mean, it's my favorite day of the year because, you know, you get free stuff, and that's nice. But I'm uh, just kidding. Uh, I, being a dad uh, is just such a cool opportunity, and there's so many that don't, have that same image that maybe I had growing up in opportunities. So if you're a dad, you make such a difference for good or for evil in a sense. And uh, there is, there's a, I listen to country music, okay? Take that however you want that to be taken. Um, I'm also not one of those purists who are like, uh, it's not real country today, you know, or whatever. But that's another debate for another time. But in a recent song, uh, there's this guy narrates kind of his life and um, how it's always moving on and how life moves quickly. And it's called Next Thing You Know. And in it, he says, he, he's getting this call that they're, him and his wife are having a kid. And um, He's dressed, apparently, and this, apparently he was given scrubs during the birth. I was not, that was not something that I was given. Um, but the doctor says, uh, hey, how are you doing there, dad? And the artist says, and no one had ever called me that. And I like, I mean, I was telling Kia, I, I was in the car, like every time, you want to see me cry, which I, driving alone in the car, listening to music, I get emotional, it's weird. Uh, and I cry a lot, and quite often, and so I was just telling Katie this, literally, the Lord just has a wonderful sense of humor. The next song on, what we were listening to was that, and I, I just started crying in the car, and so being a dad, it's one of those things that a status change means everything, and my status changed that day. I was, I, I was a dad, um, and for some of us, Father's Day might be a painful thing, too, and that's the why we have our good father who heals the brokenness of maybe a bad image or an abandonment. Uh, and for those that are standing in the gap, stand firm and strong. And I just, it matters a lot to me. So, all right, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in today. All right, uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you that you are our good father, that you're perfect, that you are also on mission. And that mission is located in the person of your son, Jesus, who then created a people. And that is the church. And that now we get to be a part of your mission. And I pray that in this heavy passage that we're going to talk about today, this really challenging, nuanced passage, that we would embrace the opportunity to be a transformational church. To be a part of your mission. You, you didn't just make the world and then take a step back and say, alright, whatever happens, happens. You made a world with a purpose. And you are moving to transform the world for our good and your glory. And you, by your goodness, have included us in that wonderful, humbling opportunity. So I pray that today I would be transformed, that we would be transformed, that we would be, embrace the challenge and responsibility of bringing the gospel to our community, 
our neighbors, our nation, and the world so that Your name may be glorified and we can experience transformation. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this is an intense passage. If you're listening to the readings, which were fantastic, there's a lot of strong language. Um, it's not Elisha and the bears, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, I, that was one message I was given the opportunity to preach. Uh, but this is a little bit more of a heavy message. So uh, I'm looking forward, though, for the opportunity that we get to journey together in experiencing the text and being changed by it. Um, transforma- transformational church, what have we been talking about? We just started the message series. Last week, Pastor Nate introduced the letter of Titus and really the first section. Now, Titus, we don't really have a Titus in the way that we as Baptists talk, do church so much. Paul was an apostle and uh, somebody said it really well. He was very practical and he had a problem at a church and he said, Titus, I can't be there. I'm sending you to cl- do some cleanup, basically. Uh, and there are several house churches on this island, uh, and what we see in this letter is Paul kind of giving the instructions to Titus to say, this is what it will take to transform all that's going on on this island with these churches, and he started with leadership. That's where he starts, is with leadership. And unfortunately, we know the dangers of what it means to not have good leadership. Uh, here are a few names. In our country alone in the last five, ten years that we've experienced uh, where Christ's name and God's people are harmed because of corrupt leadership. Ravi Zacharias, uh, uh, he is not with us anymore. He was a long time, long time apologist, defender of the faith, global ministry, and he had scandal erupt in the, uh, that had been going on for years right towards the end of his ministry. Mark Driscoll, harsh, heavy-handed leadership that was misogynistic and oppressive. And that came out, and he was uh, heralded for a long time as a great new leader of a new generation. The Southern Baptist Convention, which I, part of my education, was in the Southern Baptist seminaries. They just a few years ago, had reports of all this sexual abuse going on across all these different churches and the conventions had to wrestle with what kind of culture uh, they have allowed. And, and what we know, and the list sadly goes on and on and on, what we know is how much damage is caused by leadership in churches that are either teaching false things or teach the right things, mostly, and then their life doesn't match up what they teach. And when you bring those things together, great damage is caused. And for us here at Sparta Baptist Church, we have a shared responsibility, the elders, the pastors, and the congregation, a shared responsibility of ensuring that those who have the most influence, like Pastor Nate said, the leaders should be looking for influence, are also those that are the most good for us. And that's found because it's true to Jesus. Their life and their ministry is true to Jesus. So let's dive in. What's the context we had just talked about uh, in the Titus chapter 1? You can turn there uh, in your Bibles. 
verses 5 through 9 talked about what it means for elders, the male leadership who have a pastoral role, what their character should be. And uh, Nate talked about how character and godliness should lead to influence, where you're not grasping to a position to influence, to be transformational. You're not holding on to position to be, you're actually holding on to influence to make a difference. And Jesus is the greatest example of that, who set aside his position in heaven, came down to earth, humbled himself, and through that achieved the greatest influence. And the word influence even puts in a small context. So now as we flip to verse 10, we're going to kind of see the other side of the coin. We're going to see the not fun part about this. It's, it's a little more fun to say, well, this is what you should be. This is who we should be. This is where leadership should be. And it's a little less fun to think, well, what, are, what's the situ- what should we do when people are not that? That's a little bit difficult. And unfortunately, today we're not going to be able to dive into every nuance um, about what that looks like. So, but today, I want to summarize it in your first point, in your bulletins and on the screen. What we're, and I'm going to use this to just basically walk through the passage. So this is like a thesis statement. Okay, it's a really lame way of talking about your main point. Uh, so, a transformational church acts in the face of corrupt leadership for the sake of the sheep to stand for the truth of the gospel and for the reputation of Christ in the world. I'll say it one more time. A transformational church acts in the face of corrupt leadership for the sake of the sheep to stand for the truth of the gospel and for the reputation of Christ in the world. As a last note going into this, whenever you're studying the Bible, it's a different place, different world, different context. And sometimes there's even disagreement about how churches operated. Um, if you're in a Presbyterian or Reformed church, they have more of a, what's called a high church model where there's regional authorities and then there's national authorities and whatnot. And then so sometimes in conflict or bad leadership situations, they can send somebody in to say, I have the authority to get you out of here. Baptist churches, we aren't structured in that way and that's okay. There's a lot of good reason for that. So this is not exactly an A to B. Paul says, Titus, do this. So that means you in the pew do exactly this. There's wisdom in that. So there are some challenges in applying it exactly. But I think the goal for me is for all of us to see the shared responsibility that our elders have, but then also that we have to guard what we have going here. So let's dive in. Verse 10. So, uh, it says, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, let's take this first section, a transformational church acts in the face of corrupt leadership. He starts with the word for. So, he just said, what did he say before that? Talked about all the leaders and what they should be, the character that they should have. And he has a reason why. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. Titus would probably have a few names in his head at this point. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I know who you're talking about in this church, and I'm probably going to find some more. 
Unfortunately, when there's a leadership position, if good people aren't filling it, guess what? The wrong people do. Because in our broken world, every good thing gets, becomes a battleground for evil. And leadership is a good thing. God made the world to work with leadership structures. But it also carries sometimes a lack of accountability and influence and power. And so, when there's a gap, when there aren't good people doing the work, guess who's going to be in there? The people that probably shouldn't be in there. And so Paul, writing to Titus, says, you need to install those kinds of people for this reason. We look in verses 13 to 15. What is the exact nature of the problem? Is it just guys, you know, maybe these leaders are kind of jerks sometimes. Maybe they're just, you know, not always the most teachable people and they're rude. No, no, no. The problem is, is pretty, pretty deep. So we look in uh, end of verse 10. It says, especially those of the circumcision group. If you've read Paul's letters, this is kind of a constant theme circumcision, the controversy over circumcision. And what that is, in a nutshell, is that there were, since the gospel and Jesus' message grew out of the Jewish faith and the heritage that the Old Testament is, there's a controversy over how much of the law should be included as a part of necessity for the believer to practice to be called in Christ. And one of the major ones was circumcision. And Paul battled it. Galatians and Romans, our, our letters are really focused around those issues. Well, it comes up here. There's false teachers, these leaders in the circumcision group. They're teaching, I'm going to add circumcision, the practice of circumcising the males in Israel. We're going to add that to say, well, then you really need to be, do that in the church too. To make you a part of God's people. What it means to be in right standing with God. We're going to add that and all that is entailed with the Jewish law. So we have to address that. If you look down also in verses 13, this testimony is true, which we'll get to what he just said. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. Now Paul gets a little vague. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. What it seems to be going on is in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of laws about purity. God very much cared about how His people approach Him, and He still does. Just because those laws are removed doesn't mean that He doesn't care about how we approach Him. It's just centered in a person. You approach Him in Christ. Well, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it was through these laws that God set His people apart. And there were purity laws at individual levels, and at national levels, and these teachers were coming into these churches and saying, we've got to follow all these purity laws, otherwise you're not pure. And Paul, again, is addressing, no, 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 that's a corruption of the gospel. That is a corruption of the gospel. And then finally, it's one thing to be saying the wrong thing, and all of us at some point will say things that are incorrect, and the Lord will graciously just remind us of that on the last day, that we're not Him, and we say things that are incorrect. That's different than corrupting the gospel. But it's one thing to corrupt the gospel. It's another thing to demonstrate that in your life and have both going on in the leadership. And so in verse 16, which Pastor Nate read last week? Paul, who is very direct. You've got to appreciate that about Paul. They claim to know God 
but by their actions, they deny him. This, don't put this on a resume, guys. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, there's usually two kinds of people. There's the people who love to confront people. We all know those people. Okay, I'm actually one of those people. And then there's the people who hate to confront people. A lot of times those are the people that get married, and it's fantastic. You have those differences. Okay? If you're like, confront, yeah, detestable, disobedient, say it how it is, Paul. Truth, baby. Okay, you have that. You're probably loving that. Well, we're going to have some qualifications for you. And for those that are afraid of confrontation, God today might be saying there might be moments in your life with God where you have to step forward and say, I, don't, I think that compromises the gospel. I'm scared to say it. I don't know what you're going to say in response. You've got the degrees or you've got the experience, but I think you're compromising Jesus. And we've got to do something about it. And I'm super scared. Either person, you need to confront correctly and in the right context. And usually, confronters need to be more quiet than confronting. And I'm saying that as a confronter. But then there's the people that don't want to confront anything. just want to Roll the dice and just hope it all works out because it's way better not to create conflict. We both need to share together this responsibility. And it's a tricky one. So So I say all that to say this. What Paul is dealing with is very specific. When we go into all the things that he's instructing Titus to do and we enter into this shared responsibility... It is not, confronters first speak to you, it is not our license to make every issue we care about the issue that is, this is a gospel issue, plant the flag. It's not licensed to go on social media and subtweet about people or blast them just straight up publicly. It's not licensed to make your pet project a gospel issue. And it's also not licensed to be a jerk in the name of truth. But it is also, just like Jesus, targeted at the people with the most responsibility. Jesus was the harshest with the people that knew the most. So we do want to very carefully think through our leadership do have a unique responsibility. But it does not license us to take this, well... If I think they're detestable, then I'm on any issue. I was given license in Titus to rebuke him, tell him to shut up. Okay? Because Paul basically does say that. That's not what he's really saying. And for those that are maybe afraid to ever confront, and this shared responsibility feels really intense and difficult, they're like, they avoid the people that are the confronters, you know, they're like, ah, you know, and like, oh, that pretty, you know. Or you're in small group, which is a wonderful opportunity to experience transformation, and you're like, yeah, that's a confronter. Oh, you know, we know that person. Okay? I was almost voted out of my small group, so I can say that. It's okay. Um, I didn't make the cut for one of the small groups. It's fine. So, uh, Kelly, no. It's okay. So, uh, you who are afraid to confront, shy away from it, find it difficult, Maybe there will be one or two times, hopefully, no more than that, that God 
compels you to step out of your comfort zone and be brave and then to trust him with what happens. So that's my qualification before we get into the detestable, shut up, be quiet, silence them talk. Okay? All right, so here we go. Transformational church acts in the face of corrupt leadership. I'm just going to hit these really quickly because I've kind of covered it a little bit. So verse 10, again, don't put these on a resume. Kids, these are not the things you want to be described as, all right? So we've got rebellious people. Rebellious from within. Why is it rebellious? Because the church is committed to the gospel, and these leaders specifically are committed to teaching the gospel and also living that out faithfully as an example. They're rebelling against that, even though they have that position. Meaningless talk. Meaningless talk. Elders are often responsible for the teaching instruction, and if what they're saying is against the gospel and against Jesus and fidelity to Jesus, it is meaningless talk. Okay? Um, That does not mean every sports analogy that's brought up is meaningless talk, but it does mean that we need to make sure that the teaching that we're experiencing here is committed and faithful to Jesus, which I have great confidence in. So, meaningless talk. Deception. They're deceivers. They say this is the gospel, and they present something that's not the gospel. This happens in our culture all the time. Politically, socially in our circles, denominationally, this really is the gospel. And then it's nothing about what the gospel is. But it sounds really powerful. Verse 11, for the sake of dishonest gain, whether that's money or influence, I actually think quite often the most dangerous situations, they're actually very forward about not wanting the money, but actually what they gain then is this ability to influence people in a way that's devastating. So Paul calls out dishonest gain. And then verse 16, as we read, there's hypocrisy. And Jesus was harshest on the hypocrites. The Pharisees were hypocrites. They weren't transformed. And then they added rules. It's funny how character and teaching so often go together. When you get Jesus wrong, you can just wait. You're going to see it in their life. They go together. And that's why when we sing songs like, Show Me Who You Are, sing lines, Show Me Who You Are, Lead Me in Your Love, the showing of who you are, that's the doctrinal side. That's the side that, that sometimes we're like, okay, let's move on to the practical. The showing who Jesus is goes together with the holy life. You can't have one without the other. Because if you also don't have a life that's committed to Jesus, guess what? Something in what you're saying is missing. Because the Spirit works and transforms. So, that is the kind of person that we as a shared responsibility are called to act towards. So now let's talk about what a Christ-honoring response would be. So these are the strong words. Now, this is not, at the end, I'm going to talk about maybe some careful steps and how we think through this. But Paul says in verse 11 that they must be silenced. Paul's got a no-toleration policy for the corruption of the gospel. No-toleration policy. If you corrupt Jesus' teaching and His mission and what it means to be committed to Him, if you, if you corrupt the things as our leaders say, our pastors say so well, the tight-fisted things, it's not a, well, we can you know, agree to disagree. No, no, no. This is not agree to disagree territory, and the gospel is at the very center of that. They must be silenced. Their damage is widespread, and that's why they've got to first be quiet. 
deceivers need to first be quiet. So what is a Christ-honoring response? You've got to silence the false teaching. We have to have a responsibility to make sure the teaching that happens up here on a weekly basis, the teaching that happens in our small groups, the, the conversations we have are honoring to Jesus and are committed to Him. And that means we have to know. We have to go from connecting to growing so that we know what is faithfulness to the Gospel. And he says, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith. I love this. Because I, English translations, it, it, translation is always frustrating because there's always missed stuff. And that's why we need colleges to train people. And that's why it's a benefit to have tools to give you access. The confronters here rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in faith. And what they really, at least me, so confronters are not trying to just say you're all like me. But I see like a boot, you know, and a bam, you know, get out of here. Rebuke them sharply. They're done. Paul says rebuke them sharply, but that word rebuke has a beautiful nuance and it actually has an emphasis on restoration. How many times do you have a hard word for somebody and it ends there and the goal is not to restore them? I love our elders and our pastors because when they share something difficult, it's always with the bring you in and restore. So Paul isn't saying kick them off the island. It's not survivor. Okay? Literally an island, which is fantastic. No, keep them on the island. In fact, keep them in your churches. Restore them. But we do need to rebuke. There are times and, and opportunities to rebuke. And when it's leaders corrupting Jesus, rebuke them sharply. That's what he tells Titus, who has the apostolic authority. What that means for us might look a little bit different and practical. So, point number two. Corrupt leaders sow disunity and harm through false teaching and hypocrisy. It's hardest to call out a false teacher when their life seems to be fitting, but as soon as something comes up that demonstrates, wait, what they're saying is empty. It's those two that present such danger. I mean, we can all get on YouTube and Google like bad preachers, you know, and then these videos of like someone decoding some English sentence in Deuteronomy means that somebody's coming at this time. We're like, no, 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 that's probably not helpful, okay? And we can set that aside. It's when it seems to be mostly right, but we don't know their life. When you can bring those together and you see, wait a second, I think I know their teaching is empty because it leads to this hypocrisy. And Paul's got to deal with both in this situation. Titus has to deal with both. And don't have false teachers that ever have this holy life. There's usually something, even if you can't see it, there's something hidden. And so, one of the fruits, Jesus uses fruit language, one of the fruits of knowing if someone is not really knowing Jesus and not teaching the right way is examine their life. And that's why having a group of elders that meet together and know each other so well and having a church community committed to real, real community, safe but not comfortable, we hear it over and over and over, is because we need to see what your life looks like. And that's scary. But that's what makes us safe and that's what makes us transformational. All right, so a transformational church acts in the face of corrupt leadership. Now here are the reasons. This is not a license to just go around and every issue you see in evangelicalism, we're, I'm going I'm to start firing away. No, no, no. We have purpose for the sake of the sheep. 
Titus was sent on a mission. He wasn't just cleaning house for the sake of cleaning house because it's fun. He had a mission. It says that they are disrupting whole households. And what's really cool is that at first you might think, oh, families are being disrupted. No, 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 no. Churches were gathering in homes. The local assemblies were gathering in homes. And so when he says they're disrupting whole households, he's talking about churches of 20 and 30 and 40 people that are completely disrupted by this false teaching and hypocrisy. So why should Titus go in there? So that Paul can put up some hashtag that's like, I kick butt theologically. Okay, No, he's doing it for the sake of God's people. He doesn't want disrupted households. He doesn't want infighting. He doesn't want frustration. And the leadership is responsible for the unity and flourishing of the sheep. So, when we talk about this kind of strong action, to silence and rebuke, and if you feel moved by God to say something to the leadership, it's like, this doesn't sit right. First, examine that you're doing it because you care about God's people. Titus was sent because gospel fidelity, Jesus' fidelity matters. And it matters because it's good for God's people to be right where they need to be. To be aligned to Jesus. And any strong correction should be for the good of God's people. For the good of the people you're correcting. To restore them, but also to protect other people. I have to protect my kids from things. I have a responsibility to step in. I don't care that you have a choice about this and you, have a, you, know, you want to do this or that. I don't care. I'm empowered to say, no, I'm protecting you from that. God has installed leadership to be a protection. But when that protection is the danger, we have a shared responsibility to step in for the sake of God's people. It's not a power trip. It's not a, oh, cool, I know my Bible, I'm going to show you. Or finally my opportunity to vent about this or that. No, it's for God's people and their good and their spiritual good, their transformation. So examine yourself. Is this issue... Is this thing that I want to try to rebuke somebody in or approach the leadership to rebuke somebody in, is this issue something that will help transform our church if I rebuke them? Or maybe it's not. Maybe I should just be quiet and like deal with the fact that people are different from me or they have different struggles. Because rebuke's a strong word. There's encouragement. Okay? There's walking alongside people and calling them and inviting them into something better. But then there's rebuke. And Paul's instructing Timothy or Titus excuse me, to rebuke people that should know better. But we should ask ourselves those questions. So the third point, the action we take to rebuke corrupt leadership is always for the sake of the sheep. It is not about a personal vendetta. It is about protecting the sheep from a false gospel. Rebuke at this level where we're telling people to just be quiet. You're not allowed to be in a position anymore. You are not able to be this kind of leader or in this position because you are doing damage to the flock. We love you, but you're doing damage. It's for God's people, and it's very much focused in a particular group, and that's the leadership that have a high responsibility. But we also 
have a high responsibility to guard our hearts from personal vendetta. And in a world that's wrestling with how our politics or secondary or third issues, how those intersect with our faith, a lot of times we can make things that aren't the gospel the gospel and then rebuke somebody in it. And then we actually do the more harm to God's people than good. And this rebuke is for the good. So if you're worried like, oh man, maybe this is actually just not good, I'm going to ask some questions first and get some wise counsel and be humble. That's a great starting point. So for the sake of the sheep, and I can't overemphasize that, for the sake of the sheep. All right, moving on. So for the truth of the gospel. What's another guardrail on this level of rebuke is the gospel. Circumcision as a requirement, Jesus plus circumcision, as a requirement to be part of God's people and as a way of knowing, am I relating right to God? Do I have His verdict of righteous and loved and beloved? Adding circumcision and purity laws corrupts that. Now, you might be like, well, you know what? I haven't heard, and I definitely don't go around saying you need to be circumcised, and you need to be circumcised. That was, that'd be a weird problem to have here, to be honest. Okay? But we all, in the human condition, like to have Jesus plus something. So I'm going to just say it. Jesus plus Republican. Jesus plus Democrat. Jesus plus Libertarian. Jesus plus the best of all, Independent. I stay above that. Okay? Thank you. All right? Jesus plus my area where I don't think there's much freedom for the Christian. If you add anything to Jesus, you're corrupting the central pillar of our faith, and it, it by definition damages God's people. Therefore, this level of rebuke is directed for that. So the circumcision group, so that they will be sound in faith. Part of a sound faith is sound belief. Part of transformational life is transformed belief. Everybody had wrong beliefs before they knew Jesus. And guess what? Everybody's still like detoxing from wrong beliefs until they meet Jesus. But there's something that happens where the central truths of your life are transformed. Your central beliefs are transformed by Jesus. And if you corrupt those, you're endangering yourself, but also the people around you. By the way... It's really cool that Paul sent a person probably dropping a text message that says I'm rebuking you in the gospel might not be the way to handle these things. Oh, by the way, you're a false teacher. Let's go out for some coffee sometime. No, maybe we should do this in person. And Paul, who actually was the king of like letter writing, but he was very present and he sent Titus to be present. And so if your rebuke is not within the context of relationship, you probably don't have a place to rebuke yet. 
You need that relationship. You need that true, authentic relationship of understanding and knowing to step into that. That doesn't mean you never have a place, but the practice, the common pattern should be, hey, I need to know these people and I need to be known before I go around and start criticizing. One of the things that I've had to learn so much more is when criticism is required, when you don't know the person, that's much smaller amount of times than humble, relational, question-asking conversation for the purpose of transformation. That's the context where restoring happens. You can't restore somebody you don't know. You have to know them and care for them even when they make mistakes and don't have all the right things. We can still care for the people that we're correcting. Public shame in a witch hunt is not what we want. It's for the restoration, it's for the restoration of God's people, even the leaders that are doing some of the wrong things. So, what is this rebuke? It's for the sake of the sheep, for the truth of the gospel. There are a lot of things that Christians believe that aren't absolutely central. They're important, but they're not absolutely central. And Paul is laser-focused here. Laser-focused. And finally, for the reputation of Christ in the world. Verse 12, Even one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. More things not on a resume. This was known. And they were all, and as Pastor Nate said, they were like proud of it, kind of. And you know the people that are like proud of the things that most people know you shouldn't be proud of? Yeah, these people were like, hey, every bad virtue that even our culture says is probably not good, we love it and we're that. And the problem is the leadership, Paul says, this testimony is true. Cretans are like that. And guess what? Your leaders are being that way too. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so, so that they will be sound in faith. If the sheep look like the world, there's a problem. There's also a major problem if the sheep are trying to look like Jesus, but their leaders look like the world. That's a worse problem. When the leaders look like the world and talk like the world and affirm a reputation as bad as that, that's a problem. The reputation of our elders and pastors and our reputation as the sheep matter. And it matters because Christ's name gets attached to what our leaders say and do and what we say and do. Why is church hurt? Such a major, major issue. Why does it matter when someone walks in the doors of one church and after a year or two years you kind of hear the story and the baggage they carry of other churches hurting them? And you can't always figure out, well, how much is you and how much is them, but you just know there was hurt and pain. Because that person sometimes didn't even want to come back to a church and have the opportunity to know Jesus better because the church hurt them because they were just like the world. They were divisive, harmful, not loyal to Jesus in the ways that Jesus calls us to be. And Christ's name in the world gets defamed. How many times do we on the news or our friends who disagree with us on certain things hear about 
oh, Christian did this, or so-and-so did this, and they claim to be Christian. You have to go through that whole thing. Well, we're not all like that. And Jesus wasn't like that. As much as you want to argue that, the, the, the pain, the hurt of leaders that aren't Jesus-like and don't meet the qualifications that Paul required causes such damage to Jesus' name. To the sheep, obviously, as we just talked about, but also to who Jesus is known as in the world. And we can't always control that. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. We're not expecting a parade for Jesus around every corner. But what we don't want are false accusations that, well, if that person lies all the time, it's because their God either A, doesn't exist, or is a liar. Oh, that person is abusive emotionally, maybe physically. Guess what? It's just like they're God. Or even if they don't say that, that's what ends up happening emotionally and in the person, that God is like that. And I'd rather not believe in a God like so-and-so. And then Jesus, his name gets muddied, and so much of church history is, is wonderful, and so much of it is difficult because Jesus' name gets muddied by the actions of people who claim to be Christians. And if you're here hurt by people that have claimed to be Christians, leaders in other contexts have claimed to be Christians, and they've hurt you, it is true that they're not Jesus, who is the wonderful, caring, loving, perfect brother and God and Lord. And God even gets glory in your hurt because He can bring you into a relationship that restores you and you can say, wow, I've finally understood what God is like. And God does look glorious in that situation. So if you have been hurt, know that that's not the end of the story. The fourth point, Paul asked Titus to do the hard work of confronting and restoring those leaders harming God's church because his own reputation in the world is at stake. Every place that you are, you have opportunity for influence and to be a leader. In every context, your families, your workplaces, your friendships, your bankers, the people that the places you regularly go, our leaders, especially in a world with social media and fame and all this influence, our leaders have like two or three times as much of that responsibility because of the very nature of being in leadership. And it is our shared responsibility between the leadership and the congregation to enter into a protective stance for the sake of the sheep, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of Christ's name. We are not supposed to be like the world. Whatever they say about Americans, okay, or people from Sparta, I live in Nuego, People, they say things about people in New Ego, whatever that is, unless it's filled with wonderful things, and I'm not saying anything about the community, but you don't want to be like the world. We're called to be holy. And so if our leaders are acting just like the people we're tired of electing, I don't know, people that we're tired of seeing as the most influential in our society, if our leaders are like that, we shouldn't really be complaining. We're just like that. And so we have a responsibility to enter into that protective responsibility. So I'm going to read the passage as a whole because I've kind of taken the different parts. 
and then we're going to just enter into a time of reflective question. I'm going to ask some questions and just talk through some wisdom areas, and then we'll wrap up. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. It's a heavy passage as a whole. It's very intense. And so I thought it would be appropriate to just explore a few areas of nuance. So that we, who don't have an apostle, I mean, it would be great if Paul said, all right, I'm sending somebody to solve your problems. Great, thank you, Paul. Makes it easy, because then we'll just listen to that representative. It's not as easy. We don't have the apostle Paul sending Titus to us. First thing I want to say, and in reflecting on this, it just made me appreciate so much the elders and the pastors that we have here at church, at Sparta Baptist Church. They, I have total confidence that their teaching and their lives demonstrate wholehearted devotion to Jesus and set an example for what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. I have 100% confidence. This passage, though heavy, encouraged me knowing I don't have to worry about that right now. There's always vigilance, but I don't, I don't have to worry, oh, what do we do to correct so-and-so? So I think that's something that we should be thankful for weekly because they also create a culture that helps us be a transformational church. And I think we need to be thankful for that and step in to carry that burden more often. Be thankful for that. There are so many people that, that experience settings where that's not the case, and then they also don't know they have no other option, so they just live in it. And we have leadership that does so many, and all the things I can think of, and God's grace is what undergirds everything that we do, and God's power through His Spirit. It's not because... It's not because of human effort that these things are accomplished, but we can be so thankful for that. So, in the last few minutes, I think it's important for us as individuals and corporately to consider how we can help care for the wounds of those who've been hurt in the name of Christ. It's unfortunately common, whether it's racial sin, and prejudice, and racism, 
sexual abuse, or the tragic situation where the leadership protected the person doing the harming. And people come to us broken and skeptical and negative and distanced. And they're like, and we're like, oh, what's going on? How can we care for people in those situations? How can we care for people who have been in situations where simply the leadership never admitted a mistake or a fault and that hurt them? How can we care for the people who have taken a risk entering into this building or taken a risk going to that parking lot but they took that risk because they've heard the reputation of this church and this community. How do we guard that reputation and then enact and embrace that? Being a place where you can come and wash ashore from your difficulties and find healing and comfort. So that's the first thing we should think about. The second thing, which is probably the least comfortable thing to think about, and again, safe but not comfortable. This is a not comfortable Sunday, okay? Do we contribute to the problem locally, nationally, and globally? Do we, as the church, contribute to the problem that we tend to see, unfortunately, certainly in American evangelicalism right now, where where leaders are dropping like flies because of scandal? Do we contribute to that culture that allows that? Now, maybe it's an easy no, but the question's important to ask and to consider. On the back, we have connect, grow, serve, and lead. Those wonderful steps to move forward here at Sparta. Get connected. Start growing. Jump into some service. And then take opportunities when you can to lead and bear the burden. It's wonderful. But are, are we ever getting to the grow step? Are we mature enough to spot a problem? Do we know our Bibles well enough? Do we confront difficult passages well enough to know the, know the situation and to be able to examine, is this an issue? Are we mature enough to speak on difficult issues in a way that lovingly represents Jesus? It's difficult. Are we brave enough to enter this shared responsibility? And I would say here at Sparta Baptist, you should should just start with questions. Our leadership have gained my trust. I think they've demonstrated wholehearted devotion. If you've got an issue, start with just asking humble questions and and thinking through their answer well. But if there were a situation that you would feel the need to address, are you brave enough, even if you end up being wrong, which you'd want to be wrong, Even if you end up being wrong, you were brave enough to step into it and said, for Jesus' sake, for his sheep's sake, I'm going to do the hard thing. And then finally, are we wise enough to know when to either step forward in godly rebuke, ask questions curiously, which I love when Pastor Nate's emphasis in that, or when to live in unity because it just isn't important enough. Isn't important enough. Oh, I don't agree, and I would do it differently, but you know, it's not a gospel issue. It's not even really a secondary issue. It's like a fifth issue, fifth and dairy issue. 
like probably 90% of the time it's a second to fifth in dairy issue. But sometimes we need to have the wisdom to know when it is a first issue. This is a gospel issue. That's tough. How do you grow in wisdom? True community, centered around God's Word, driven through the Holy Spirit, connected to Jesus. Those are the things that grow you. And to be a transformational church, we have lots of pieces, small groups, you know, worship on Sundays, outreach opportunities and ministries. We have wonderful pieces of the puzzle, service opportunities, our kids' ministries on Wednesdays. You want to grow? Step into a kids' ministry right away, okay? You want to be challenged? You want to lead? Step into a kids' ministry. Step into the youth ministry. Jump in. There's lots of pieces for us to be a transformational church, but if we don't have the pursuit of God with our minds to know and the wisdom to enact what it means to protect what we have here, which is a treasure, then there's a, a large open piece of the puzzle that the devil could get in and disrupt. Sin in the flesh can disrupt. If we don't pursue that, and that's that shared responsibility to pursue God with our minds, to know the Scriptures, and to humbly take on the character it is required to be mature in Christ. And along with that, I would suggest before, I don't know, standing up in service and starting to rebuke somebody, which would probably not be the way you should do it at all, is to ask good questions to the leaders you've drawn closer to, closest to. Ask the elders good questions. Ask the pastors good questions when you have a real concern. Because guess what? If it's done right, it's humble, and it's done with the intention to protect the sheep, they're going to love that you brought that forward because that's what they're on mission for. So first, ask good questions. and Maybe ask your friends, have you ever felt this or experienced What do you think? That would be the great first step because we don't have a Titus that just gets sent to us and says, this is wrong and this is wrong. Okay? So we have that shared responsibility. The elders have that primary responsibility. That would be my suggestion. And I pray that God would use this heavy, intense, sharp language to be a part of what it means to be a transformational church. So we experience transformation and we bring that Christ-centered, gospel-driven transformation all over the world, places like Mexico. Those kids, kids and administrators and educators are getting the support. Those are the things that we want to be about. And I pray that this passage inspires you to pursue God in a way that would put you in a position to be an active participant in sharing and protecting the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness. I have been so challenged in studying this passage as an individual and as a congregant here, like how can I be a part of what it means to um, protect the gospel for the sake of your people and for the sake of your name? I pray that we would walk away not just with a license to rebuke, but really with a godly desire to see your kingdom built here on earth through your son Jesus in the way that you are going to build that kingdom. In that one piece of that, is holding faithful to what you've passed down to us in your word, focused and centered around your son Jesus. 
and that we would begin to spot when there are problems and know how to wisely step forward for your sake because sometimes those difficult things are the moments where we have to stand in the gap because other people aren't. I pray that we would do that with great humility, with listening ears and a heart quick to receive other perspectives. But that the, we would be committed to your son Jesus, first and foremost, into his gospel above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.